Hello, I'm Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books. A lot has been happening on the Palestinian issue recently. On Friday, November 4th, two small boats crewed by Western and Palestinian peace activists were stopped and boarded by the Israeli Navy as they tried to sail to Gaza and break the long-running blockade that Israel has maintained around Gaza. That same day, I managed to catch up with our author, Leila El-Haddad, as she was on her way to a speaking engagement in Boston. Leila is originally from Gaza. Her book is called Gaza Mom, Palestine, Politics, Parenting and Everything in Between, and it tracks six years of her experiences as a busy journalist and mom traveling in Gaza and outside it between 2004 and 2010. When I caught up with Leila by Skype, she was in a car with her two children sleeping in the back seat. So she had to muffle her voice somewhat while speaking, and the sound quality is a little jumpy at times. Still, I thought it was really worthwhile to record and share the perspective of someone like Leila, who throughout her life has embodied the perspective of the Palestinians of Gaza. Talk to you about this latest flotilla that has been trying once again to get letters into Gaza and uh, just establish a human connection between the people in Gaza and the people in the world outside. Now, I know that you've suffered a lot from this um, long lasting siege that the Israelis have maintained about Gaza. Could you talk just a little bit about how it's affected your family's life and how it affects how this siege affects the life of other Gazan families? Absolutely. I talk a lot about this, of course, in uh, my book, uh, Gaza Mom, Palestine Politics, Parenting and Everything in Between, uh, particularly uh, towards the end as the siege began to intensify. Um, but, you know, Gaza has been under closure for so many years, really since 1991, varying degrees of closure that have just become more intense and more suffocating over the years. Uh, and the latest um, phase of the siege is most significant in how it affects uh, the everyday lives of Palestinians, more so than things like food, which is often misunderstood that the siege is somehow about food, it's really about basically uh, fishermen to fish more than two nautical miles into sea, the freedom of Palestinian farmers, and of course agriculture makes up uh, almost half of the Palestinian economy in the Gaza Strip. Their ability, the, the siege impinges and severely restricts their ability to reach their farmland in the buffer zone. In fact, so much of that area where a third of the arable land is located has been completely cleared. Uh, the siege is about the freedom of Palestinian students to go and pursue their studies in the West Bank or in Jerusalem. There's a categorical ban on it, actually, and their ability to, to travel um, out of Gaza to the West Bank or Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, you know, um, and it continues to be also about things like the population registry. So it impinges on the ability of my husband, who's also Palestinian, uh, to be able to travel with us on basic family life. Uh, and, uh, and you know, this is really what the siege is about, and this is what um, I think the this latest flotilla wants to emphasize, that these are basic human rights and dignities that are being uh, blockaded. And 
in that sense, it's so important for the ships to continue and remind people of that no matter how many times they get hauled away. Um, we have to remember that despite the prisoner exchange deal, Gaza is still under very intense siege that is not seen, that is not let up, that has not seen any kind of easing whatsoever. So the Israelis frequently claim that Gaza is not under occupation, but um, for you, for your family, does it feel like it's under occupation? I mean, how does how does this Israeli control of the borders get justified if it's not an occupation? It's funny because it's really almost like a mirage, the way that they manage the occupation over Gaza. And uh, we do continuously hear this myth of, of the occupation having ended, but I think the only one that really buys it is maybe... Uh, you know, the Israeli government and perhaps Congress. But legally speaking, and in every sense of the other sense of the word, Gaza is still very much under occupation in the sense that all elements of uh, effective control um, are are with Israel. So they do maintain control over the borders, the airspace, uh, the sea, the population registry, and the taxes, which, you know, just today um, we read in the news that the Israeli government has decided to, again, because they did this after the elections of 2006, to um, withdraw or withhold the taxes that they collect for the Palestinian Authority. Um, but, you know, in the sense of borders, you, you spoke about how they control the borders. While the Rafah crossing is on the ground controlled or managed by Israel, the system that governs who can use that crossing is still an Israeli system that, that Egypt has chosen to continue to adopt and enforce. So, so only... Palestinians with uh, Israeli-approved ID cards known as the Hawiya may use Rafah crossing. Uh, and I should say only resident cards from Gaza. So if you were a Palestinian in the West Bank or a Palestinian in diaspora, uh, even if you were married to a Gaza resident, you cannot use Rafah crossing. And that is how Israel continues to control Rafah crossing. In the Arab crossing in the north, there is simply a categorical ban on almost all all Palestinians from Gaza, except for a minority of uh, medical cases or diplomats or journalists or international journalists or, or aid workers. And, uh, and again, they only allow in limited supplies of things through the Karim Shalom crossing, uh, commercial goods, and no exports are allowed out and no uh, construction materials or factory components are allowed in. So you write quite a lot about this in your fabulous book, Gaza Mom, that I am really proud to have published, about how, like, your parents currently are in Gaza, and I guess you and your kids and your husband would like to go back and be able to visit your, your parents for the upcoming feast that's coming this just, just this weekend. But your husband can't go. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So my parents are in Gaza and we it's always this dilemma of how can we travel together there? How can we visit, you know, as a family? How can we exercise this very basic uh, right of ours? And it's just uh, sort of in the realm of the imagination at this point. And even if we were able to make it to Gaza, the other problem then becomes how to challenge this other element component of the siege, which is the um, goal 
the Israeli goal to separate Gaza from the West Bank, the stated goal to, to make Gaza a separate entity. So you make it into Gaza, and then what? We want to be able to visit the rest of Palestine, to be able to go to the West Bank, to East Jerusalem, even to his to visit his historic um, hometown in, in uh, northern areas of historic Palestine near Haifa. But we've any of that, and that also we have to remember is another is an added element uh, to the blockade on Gaza. So these kind of um, things that eat right into your family's ability to, to have a normal family life, to have normal family gatherings and get-togethers. Is this special to your family, or, or do you think most Gaza families are being split up in this way? Yeah, as, as I talk about a lot in, in uh, Gaza Mom, these ordinary moments uh, comprise the quintessential Palestinian experience. And if you understand what the occupation is about, uh, and understand what Palestinians are going through, what the Palestinian experience is, uh, you have to be able to look at these sort of banal, ordinary, quiet uh, moments on checkpoints and on borders. And uh, it is something that is definitely one of the most uh, common uh, of all Palestinian experiences, whether you are from the West Bank or Gaza, or you live in a refugee camp outside, or you're in diaspora. This is something that bonds all Palestinians. Do you think the flotillas will help um, to open up the borders for you and for the other um, kinds of Palestinians? Uh, in you know, in so far as they bring attention uh, to the impact of the siege, then they are doing their part, I think, uh, in challenging both the blockade and the occupation. You know, no one can do everything, no organization can do anything, but it's better than sitting back and not doing anything at all, as I like to say. <laughs> People have become very complacent, I think, lately, when they hear of some sort of what they might um, you know, understand as good news, whether it's the prisoner exchange deal or the UNESCO uh, membership or the UN bid, they seem to forget that there's all these very brutal realities that still exist on the ground, whether we're talking about the West Bank and East Jerusalem, or whether we're talking about the continuing blockade on Gaza. And in this case, they're highlighting the maritime blockade. So yeah. I think they are playing a very important role. And of course, the benefits, the fruits we may not see uh, for a while. But it really boggles the mind that this military occupation of Gaza, East Jerusalem, the West Bank has been going on for 44 years now. I mean, never in human history, you know, so long as there's been kind of a, a law of an international law regulating military occupations, that's the Geneva Conventions. There's never been a, a military occupation this long. How, how do you explain this? I mean, it's simple. It's because that's, it's a very good question is why do they continue to do it? And it's really because they can and because uh, they're not held accountable and because the cost is relatively low to them compared to the benefit that they're gaining. And they're allowed to do so with the blessing and backing uh, of the United States and Congress. And, uh, and so that's really why uh, it continues. And I think we're really, though, at this critical juncture where um, the, you know, the occupation and, and Israeli policies are becoming more costly, and that is sort of the goal of movements like boycott, divestment, and sanctions that I talk about in my book, Gaza Mom, is to raise the cost of the occupation and to make the occupation, to delegitimize uh, the occupation. Do you think that there's more awareness now in the United States than there was a few years ago about 
these injustices and about the need to end them? I think there is. It's change is happening slowly but surely. If you look, you know, kind of zoom out and and um, look at things ten or twenty years ago in this country, um, there was much less, I think, awareness about what was happening and you know the injustice of it all, um, the inequity, as there is now. So I'm hopeful, but I'm also not banking on there being a change from within the Beltway, but rather from outside of the building on, um, you know, uh, on movements and on people uh, um, of conscience everywhere and on um, really going to mechanisms like boycott, divestment and sanctions and basing this, framing this as a rights-based. I'm hopeful that those kinds of things will really begin to illuminate more and ultimately um, end the occupation. Well, listen, I know you're up there in Boston with the children in the car, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. And um, I gather you've got some speaking engagements there this weekend, and it's just great to have you out there, as you say, outside the Beltway, talking to Americans about what it really is to be a Gaza mom. So thanks very much, Leila, for talking to us. Thank you, Helena, so much. And I should you know, remind listeners that they can always read more and learn more in my book that you mentioned, Gaza Mom, Palestine Politics, Parenting, and Everything in Between. Okay. Have a great eye. Bye. Thank you.